Hello everyone, my name is Eleanor. Uh, please join me in prayer as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day where we can come together to worship you, pray, sing your praises and hear your word. Thank you for giving us your word that shows us the way to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Settle our thoughts and help us to put aside the busyness and distractions of this week. In your mercy, open our hearts and minds to receive your word so that we may understand and be changed by it. Help Matt as he teaches from your word this morning Help him to teach faithfully and clearly to the glory of your name and for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our second reading uh, this morning is taken from John chapter 13, verses 21 to 38. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Here uh, we find Jesus and his disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper. Jesus has just finished washing his disciples' feet. And the scripture from Psalm 41 verse 9 that you heard earlier is about to be fulfilled, which says, He who shared my bread has turned against me. Starting at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, 
love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the roaster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I uh, get up to, well, I'm standing now to preach, I wonder if Roy and um, Mitch can hand out the little diagram we need for this morning. Oh, you've done it already. It's so efficient. Excellent. Okay. Um, did everyone get, hands up if you've not got one, because it is kind of, it's good to have one. Oh, there's a few people at the front. Could you bring one? I also don't have one. That's probably my bad, not yours. But let me grab one from you. You might have a couple of questions uh, as to why um, you've got this in front of you. Um, I'll explain in a moment. I wonder, though, maybe Shay at the back, if you could grab this and hold it up and go near the camera, because I've just realised there's, there's not many people who join us online, but there's at least a few, including Auntie Mo, and she probably needs to see that. So if you can kind of work out the right angle so that she can have a little look at that, that would be uh, helpful. Uh, one of the things that may have struck you as you saw this bit of paper is probably prior to this morning, you thought the greatest bit of art in relation to the Last Supper was Da Vinci's, the Last Supper. Uh, but the uh, apprentice has now become the master. Uh, you might also be wondering why, I've, I've, surely there is an option online, thanks Shay, um, that, that is better than this. Uh, there's none. Actually, as far as I can see, no, no at least available for public consumption. Uh, and this has two advantages over uh, Da Vinci's. Obviously, it's more lifelike to begin with. Uh, no, first of all, Da Vinci's uh, has got um, them around a table all on the one side, which obviously works well for a painting, but is just not the reality. They wouldn't have been sitting, they would have been reclining. Uh, we actually find that out in verse 23, if you're in any doubt. Um, second of all, Mary wouldn't have been there, alas, it's just the 12 uh, at this point. Uh, and then thirdly, he gets the seating positions all wrong. Um, I'll talk about the seating positions, they become important a little later on. And in fact, they're part of the reason why I've given you this little diagram um, and so please try and not be uh, distracted by uh, the uh, glory of my art. Uh, it, will, it will nonetheless hope, uh, help, I hope. Now, one more thing before we start, just to adjust expectations this morning. Um, uh, we had beautifully read by Eleanor, verses 18 to 38, but we're just looking at 18 to 30 this morning. So we're just looking at Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial. That's the subject of Bible studies this week. So if you come along to a Bible study, you'll be able to, part, you'll be able to uh, pick apart that verse, those verses, share it together. If you're here and you're like, oh, but I'm not part of a Bible study, but I would love to understand more, then on the last page of your order of service, I should have one, but I don't, there's a, a um, QR code, scan that, just say, Matt, I want to join a Bible study, and I will organize that for you. So you have no excuses not to come this week if you want to find out more about Peter's uh, denial. So, John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. Uh, and uh, I want to come at this by talking a little bit about an experience I had a few weeks ago. 
not last week, but the, the week before, I was part of a leadership development type thingy for church uh, pastors, or a group called Reach Australia. It was an excellent experience. Anyway, as is the case with things like this, and you may have experienced this at work or uni or even at school, there's a bunch of pre-readings required in order to make the most of the week before you. And one particular reading was from a management guru uh, called Patrick Lencioni. Hands up if you heard of uh, Mr. Lencioni. Excellent. Four. Well, that'll do. That's okay. I assumed you hadn't. Um, but the book, is, the chapter that I read is from a book called Death by Meetings. Death by Meetings. And having read the chapter, I suspect I probably don't read to read the whole book because the thesis of the chapter, the central point of the chapter I read, which kind of gives its, uh, the title to the book, is that we all hate work meetings. And what makes them so universally disliked, except by a perverse few, is that they are often incredibly boring. So boring they induce sleep, or as he implies, perhaps even death. And what makes work meetings so boring? Is it the dry office space? Is it the endless bullet points, the subject matter, the corporate speak, the neckties? Well, none of that probably helps. But his big idea is that what kills office meetings is that they lack the drama of conflict. And without conflict, our interest is already dead, gone. He says the very thing that directors, novelists, reporters, and storytellers crave, the source and the lifeblood of engagement, conflict is the thing that we kill with our dry, dissatisfied, often passive-aggressive meetings. Don't allow conflict into a meeting, Lencioni says, and you invite death into that meeting. And if Lencioni is right, and for what it's worth, I, I, think, I think he is, he'd have absolutely no such criticism of John chapter 13 this morning. He would love positively, as the youth these days say, froth this scene. Because few scenes in the history, the annals of history, have had so much conflict and drama packed in as the scene before us this morning. But for us to understand the scene, let's set the scene where we're up to in John's Gospel, the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Well, you'll, you'll probably have noticed we're in chapter 13 of 21 chapters. And you might think that that means we're halfway through Jesus' life story. But as we remarked at the start of the series, by no means, we're at right near the very end. Right near the very end, John really slows things down for the last 12 or so chapters. In fact, chapters 13 to 19, which we're going to be in for the next six to eight weeks, 13 to 19, covers just a 24-hour period in Jesus' life and then at the very end, his death, his last 24 hours. So it's like the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel are kind of like a, an action montage with Eye of the Tiger playing in the background. But then in the second half, it really slows down. And then it really, really slows down for 13 to 19. But then it really, really, really slows down for chapters 13 to 17. 
Because those five chapters that we've just started last week cover just a five-hour period, a chapter per hour. Not a chapter per year, but a chapter per hour. John really wants our focus to be on these chapters. And the scene is Jesus' last teaching, his last meal, his last supper with his disciples in the upper room. In fact, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus primarily on the, what we call the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we'll share over there a little later on. But John doesn't do that. John focuses primarily on Jesus' teaching. But like many good teachers before him and after him, Jesus doesn't begin his teaching with words so much as he begins with an object lesson, a striking act of grace and humility that Roy helped us see last week with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. John opens this tender moment with these words, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This love he expresses, he incarnates with the humiliating, defiling, sullying act of washing his disciples, his students' feet. Jesus, not just their teacher, not just their Lord, but, but as John's been at pains to tell us throughout this gospel, their God, the one who ignites the stars and puts them in their array, who builds and binds every atom, who sends blood coursing through our veins, breathes the breath of life in Adam and in us. That God bends to wash their stinky, grotty, fecal-baked feet. It's a moment of aching tenderness, of poignant grace. But not far below the surface of this tranquil moment, there is a dark tide that rolls. There are black waters brewing that breach the surface, pointing towards, portending that chaotic conflict that will soon engulf those 12 men. And you have the first hint of it in verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, if you're up to chapter 13 of John's Gospel, or even if you've come on fresh off the street and never read a Bible before, there's a good chance that you know Judas is the betrayer. As Roy commented last week, humorously, no one calls their kid Judas because of that. But if you've read John's Gospel, then he, like the other Gospel writers, takes every single opportunity he can to say, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. If John wrote this in 70 or 90 AD, this gospel, then half a century later, the wound still stings and smarts of Judas's betrayal. But it's not just the readers of John's gospel know about this betrayal. Jesus told his disciples years earlier, John 6, 
Jesus says this, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, his disciples? Yet one of you is a devil. From the early stages of Jesus' ministry, we and his disciples know that there is a devil in their midst. But chapter 13, verse 1, tells us that the fatal betrayal is nigh. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The cross, which has haunted the gospel like a shadow chasing Jesus around, is finally there front and center in chapter 13, verse 1. And so as Jesus bends to wash his disciples' feet, knowing the insufficiencies, inconsistencies, the deep compromise of the twelve, then when he comes to Judas, he knows that he is washing the man who will shortly sell him for 30 pieces of silver to his death. And at that moment, as Jesus kneels to wash for the first time, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, the serpent has feet, and the Son of God washes them. Light incarnate, bending to serve darkness personified. See, if Lencioni is after conflict, then he could ask for little more than this scene provides. The primordial conflict of the universe reaching its nigh summit. Love and death, life and darkness, good and evil, night and dragon, God's king versus the prince of this world, obedient son listening to heavenly father and son of destruction listening to the whisper of the father of lies. But as we read these words, and perhaps if we read fantasy novels, it evokes images in our mind of what we've read, there is a caution that's needed. This is not a dualistic fight. That is, this is not a 50-50 eternal struggle, equal and opposing forces facing off against each other. Satan is not God's opposite. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that he and his father, they know what's coming. They know the great evil that will soon befall him, and they will use this evil for good. In fact, what Jesus does, and skipping to our little bit now, chapter 13, verse 18, he quotes a passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And Jesus is quoting David, who was a king before Jesus, a thousand years before Jesus. And Jesus is saying there that God, speaking through David, his king and his prophet, told us a millennia ago that this was going to happen. We knew that my betrayal was going to take place. But that language... He who shared my bread has turned against me. He's not just talking about a colleague or an acquaintance. Jesus is saying that from eternity past, spoken by David a thousand years ago, 
we knew, Father and Son, knew that one who would share my bread, one who would walk in intimate fellowship, true mateship, us Aussies might say, was going to stab his long knife in my back. Verse 19, I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Because Jesus knows this is going to throw them. How could it not throw them? One of their 12, a betrayer. And yet he wants them to know he knows what's coming on. He knows what's going to happen. He's in charge. And in fact, that phrase that Jesus uses there, I am who I am, is a phrase that you may well know or may well not, is freighted with meaning and significance. Because I am who I am is a special name of God in the Old Testament, the name of his self-disclosure. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh, but in our English versions, you'll see it translated with lowercase, uh, uppercase, but lower, smaller font, L-O-R-D. So small Lord, you'll see that. That is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And Jesus is saying, as God, I know who will betray me. Worry not, my little flock. I know what's going to happen. He knows his betrayer as, a, as God. But he knows his betrayer as a man too, because that's the mystery of the incarnation, that peculiar Christian teaching that Jesus is fully God, fully man. And as a man, no matter how aware, how prepared for betrayal, it still ruins him. Verse 21. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Those words, troubled in spirit, is the exact same words to describe Jesus when he finds out that his close friend Lazarus was dead. It's the type of soul-rending that only death and betrayal bring about. Jesus knows the, the limits of his disciples. He knows that they're not particularly good at getting references and picking up hints. So he says it as plainly as he can. Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And so verse 22, understandably, the disciples stare at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. I mean, who could betray him after these three, four precious years? Walking together, eating together, sleeping together, in danger for life together, sitting at the feet of the master together. They'd left family, friends, livelihood, homes, regions for Jesus. How could one of them possibly betray him? It's a scene of confusion. But as is always the case, Simon Peter is the first to speak. Verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to the disciple, this disciple, and asked him which one he means. Now, verse 23, sorry, I skipped it, but it's important. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So we've got two disciples, Simon Peter, and we've got this rather cryptic allusion to the disciple who Jesus loved. 
Well, if you keep on going to the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, you find out that this disciple is none other than John, the author of this Gospel. He's the one reclining next to Jesus. And now we have, if I've lost you with all that, have a look at your diagram. This is where the diagram becomes important. So tables in those days were in a U shape. You recline, you're lying down. And so you've got John who reclines back into the, literally the breast of Jesus to ask the question. And so you notice, you may have, Peter might be missing half his head in yours, sorry about that. But you have Peter on the other side. There's a question mark there. We don't actually, we don't actually know where Peter is. It does make sense of what's transpiring. And I think with Peter's motioning, and then is verbalizing, you've probably got a little something like this. Psst! Psst! John! 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 Yeah, yeah, you're the one closest. Ask him! Ask him! Do it! And so John dutifully obliges, and so he leans back into Jesus' chest, and he asks him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. The scene continues, but as it continues, there's two things that have always perplexed me about what transpires next. If you know the scene, you might have these questions. Question one, why the bread dipping? Why not just say it's Judas? And two, if Jesus says this as clearly as he does, and Judas takes the bread, why does no one seem to get it? Verse 27, so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. I mean, the disciples are slow on the uptake, but this seems to be kind of pushing the envelope here. So, two questions, why the bread dipping, and two, why the confusion? Well, let's go with the confusion first. It's a hypothesis, I can't prove it, and I'm certainly not the first to kind of put this forward. But I think it's the best explanation, and it's this. Because John is right next to Jesus, kind of in his kind of lap almost, his answer could quite likely have been too soft for others to hear. So Jesus speaks, and John and perhaps only Judas hear what's said, and hence everyone else is a little hapless. That does leave the question, though, How come John doesn't get it? Verse 28 says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Uh, I don't know. Perhaps John's so bewildered, so discombobulated at not only the promise of betrayal, but then the fact that Jesus doesn't try and stop it, mitigate it. He kind of goes, go do your thing and do it quickly. Maybe just kind of get his head around the scene in that space of time. So I think most of the people are confused because they haven't heard, and John's just a bit confused because it is a bit confusing. That's my my take. You may have another. But question one, and this is probably a more important one, why why the bread dipping? Well, there was a custom in the ancient world, it probably still exists in part of the world today, that the host of a banquet, by dipping in hand, delivering a choice morsel, the word could mean bread or meat, by delivering it in, by hand to a person, honours that guest. If you want an Old Testament example, go to, uh, we're not going to go there now because of time, but Ruth chapter 2, you see uh, Boaz doing that to Ruth, if that, 
If that means other things, you don't worry about it. You don't need to know that. And so by dipping the bread and giving it to Judas, Jesus does the frankly almost unthinkable, doesn't he? He honours him. Above all the others, he honours him. But not only that, coming back to my diagram now, for Jesus to be able to pass the bread directly to Judas without causing a whole logistical kind of kerfuffle, because remember, everyone's lying down. Judas most likely would have had to have been sitting to Jesus' immediate left. And the left, as well as the right, but particularly the left, in fact, was the seat of honour at a banquet. Jesus honours him in seating position and then honours him by giving him the choice morsel, the sign of his affection. Why, why would, I mean, he knows what's going to happen. We've been told time and time again, Jesus is God, he knows exactly what's coming. Why would he lavish this honour on Judas? Was it a tongue-in-cheek kind of mock, ironic honouring? Well, no, that's not Jesus' way. He doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. I take it it's an insight into Jesus' heart. He knows the fate of this man, and yet he still does whatever he can in grace and compassion and in kindness to win him over. He keeps him in his twelve despite knowing his treachery. He has him in charge of the purse despite knowing his embezzlement. Not saying that's best practice for the record, but that's true. He washes his feet, gives him his seat, and then gives him the food of honour. He's holding wide his arms to the son of destruction. Perhaps it's the Apostle Paul picturing the scene that says these words in chapter 12 of Romans. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And that word for feed is a really rare word that only pops up again in John chapter 13 and 14. If your hungry, enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I wonder if that's a salutary reminder to people who, if you're a bit like me, tend to try and fight fire with fire, who are not in the habit of putting our gun down first, who savour the flavour of the right verbal barb at the right time who are quick to spot a Judas and then burn all bridges, who see people as irredeemable and then toss them aside. That's not the way of Christ. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right up until the end, he held out his hand, wide his heart, to his traitor. Back to our scene, though, and at that moment, he's holding out his bread. And at that moment, Judas has a choice. 
the starkest of choices because he is about to be exposed. He can repent. He can accept the grace and mercy of that offer, renounce his evil, come to his Lord and Master for forgiveness. A forgiveness he surely knows is on offer. That very evening there's evidence of Jesus' tender heart toward him. Well, he can double down on the dark deed. He can inch one step closer towards the abyss of treachery. Well, it's not a cliffhanger though, is it? There's no tension because 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. The final act of love as one commentator remarks, with terrible immediacy becomes the decisive moment of judgment. The final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. In fact, so complete is that surrender, so thorough the possession of Judas at this point, that it is the first and the only recorded time in all of the Bible where Satan is said to have entered into a person. In fact, such is Satan's hold over Judas at that point of surrender, that moment, that when Jesus then says, what you are about to do, do quickly, one wonders whether or not he's talking to Judas or directly to Satan at that point. Well, whether it be Judas, Satan, perhaps it's a both and. The first time, in a long time, he obeys. Verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Those words, it was night, are not written for timekeeping sake. We all know it's the evening meal, nor is it a reference about the poor luminosity of the evening. Actually, Passover, when this was taking place, is full moon, so it was probably quite bright outside. No, the word, it is night, is are words of dark foreboding, aren't they? Pointing to the woe and excruciation that is about to come. The Gospel author Luke talks about it as the hour of the power of darkness. With that departure of Judas, the final kind of machinery and parts are in place for the arrest, the trial, and the execution, irreversibly moving towards that end. It was night. Darkness rises, billows, swarms around Christ and his disciples. The ultimate conflict of light and dark is only hours away at this point. In fact, it'll be less than 12 hours after this moment that Jesus is lashed, punctured, and pinned to a cross. At that point, darkness does its worst. Serpent bears his fangs spits enraged venom, evil rises to its full stature, 
and falls upon Christ. And such is the magnitude of that malevolent rage that is spent that the ground quakes, the curtain rips, the sky turns dark, Jesus cries out, forsaken. And in that moment, it appears that the darkness has won. And there is 36 hours of silence. But then the sun breaks Easter morning. The tomb rolled away. And we remember John chapter 1 verse 5. Now the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. We not only remember those words, we remember the words of John 13, 31, dipping into our next scene. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. The moment of darkness, conquest and good's humiliation is actually darkness being conquered and goodness being glorified. Jesus knows the path to victory is defeat. Glory is through humiliation and shame. And on that cross, Jesus is the fullest and final expression of those words, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And it's funny because the crucifixion and resurrection obviously take place after our chapters 13 to 17. But Jesus is so confident of the actions that will take place, so confident of the victory that he will achieve, that he acts like it's already occurred. Time and time again in those chapters, he says, well, John 16, 33 perfectly captures the spirit of his comment, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. In fact, as you read the next four chapters, which we're going to spend six weeks doing, message of comfort, message of love and hope are the repeated themes throughout those four chapters. He starts in chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And take a step back and think about the scene. He kind of has to hit that note time and time and time again, doesn't he? Because he knows what is about to take place. Over the next 24, 36, 48 hours, their Lord will be taken and crucified. They will be scattered. One will betray them. One will deny. All will leave save one. But when Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, fear not, for I have overcome the world, he's not just talking about the next 24 hours. He's talking about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years for these men. As they face violent opposition, persecution, poverty, starvation, and six, maybe eight of those 11 remaining disciples are martyred, are killed over the coming years for Jesus' sake. See, Jesus knows in that upper room, as the darkness swells, that their life will feel like this at times. That often it will feel like the darkness is winning. That Jesus lost, that pain is too great for the comfort. 
And that might be life for us, right? Yes, the promise of resurrection, glory, Jesus, comfort. There are side dishes of delight and joy, for sure. But our diet is not that. Our diet is suffering, grief, pain, abject hopelessness at times. And so as we spend the next few weeks sitting alongside the disciples, as we hear our Lord's teaching, 2,000 years perhaps after the fact, but we, like those original disciples, need reminder of Christ's comfort, the tenderness and love he offers. Need to be reminded that, yes, indeed, despite circumstances, he has overcome the world. There will be trouble and heartache in this world. But in the end, grace and mercy, goodness and light will triumph. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may our hearts not be troubled. May we hear these words of assurance and comfort spoken to your disciples. And may we know it is true of us if we are disciples all those years later. Help us to know that you have indeed overcome the world, that good does triumph. And I pray that you might help us lead lives which seek not to fight evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name, amen.